And so let us turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 5a. So that's the first part of verse 5 today. So 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 2. But as you turn there, you know, we really tend to only be thinking about being thankful during Thanksgiving, right? That's it's kind of in the name. And as it uh, rapidly approaches here, uh, right, we, we tend to be more mindful of being thankful. Uh, and there are some who recognize the value of being thankful outside of just one particular time of the year. And so they recommend things such as uh, having a thankfulness journal or in your journal every day writing something that you're thankful for. And the purpose of that is to uh, better improve your mood and that, uh, that there are some uh, psychological reasons uh, why being thankful can be healthy for you. And that kind of poses the question for us, what should we as Christians be thankful? Or how should we be thankful? Or what should we be thankful for? Well, as we turn to the scriptures this morning, we find Paul, uh, Silas, also known as Silvanus, uh, and Timothy, they open up their letter to the Thessalonians with thankfulness. And really, as you look through it, the first three chapters of this letter are all about this kind of prayer of thanks to God for various reasons. But when we look to it, when, and we have to see this, we have to realize this, that when the word of God comes in power, good works are the result. And one of the results of one of the good works that result from God's power at work in us is thankfulness. Should be thankfulness. Should include thanksgiving. Uh, so let us read God's word. Uh, and I'll go old fashioned here maybe and ask you if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. This short, short passage. Verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you may be seated. So again, Paul here, he's writing this letter of love to the people of God in Thessalonica. And he has a pastoral motivation in writing to them. He wants to see them do well. He wants to see them grow in grace and godliness and in the word. He wants to see them have the strength to persevere in the midst of persecution. And though he and his co-workers have had to move on from them, they've not really moved on from them in heart. Their hearts are are still with the Thessalonians. And so let's begin to unpack here and say, why does he open up and he says we give thanks? What, what is his reason for being thankful for them? So let's look up in, first, uh, in verses 2 through 3, and we see he, he gives constant thanks, constant thanks in verses 2 through 3. And he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So the Thessalonians are a cause for thanksgiving for before God. And, and again, we'll get to some of the specifics of that here today. But first, let's notice two things, two qualities 
to the relationship that Paul, Silas, and Timothy have with these believers. And the first is, notice that what he says there, we give thanks to God always. We give thanks to God always. Uh, as I said at the beginning, right, we're, we're not always thankful. And I think part of it is maybe the context that we live in, the culture that we live in. Uh, we're not always thankful for those whom God has given unto us. Uh, we in America are not typically a thankful lot, though we have a lot to be thankful for. And maybe some of that stems from a certain sense of entitlement, right? We're owed what we have, so why should we be thankful for what we're owed? Maybe some of it comes from our bootstrap mentality, right? That we pick ourselves up, and we've done this, and we've earned what we have. So why should we be thankful for what we have earned? Or maybe some of it comes through the constant discontentment that we are fed through advertising. Right? What we have is not good enough. It's not the good thing. It's not the best thing. It's not the newest thing. It's not the greatest thing. It's less than. And so what, why, am I, why am I supposed to be thankful for an old, broken-down car? Why am I supposed to be thankful for an old, outdated phone? Why am I supposed to be thankful for clothes that, you know... They're no longer hip or with it. Good news for me is I've never had hip or with it clothes. So, you know, maybe one day that'll come about and I'll be on top, right? Be on top of being on bottom of the, the clothes chain. But uh, at any rate, right here, what Paul is expressing it for the Thessalonians, right? He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And... He is expressing here a sense of thankfulness for the, for the lives, for the ministry, for the obedience, for the faithfulness, for the love, for the mercy and the grace of God shown through the lives of the Thessalonians. And they, they give thanks for them because there is something thanks worthy in them. And notice the extent of that, right? He says, we give thanks to God every Monday. Right now, right? He says, Always, always for all of you, right? There is a, there is a level where he says, I, I am so excited to go before God and offer thanksgiving for you and your lives, for your ministry, for, for everything that God has worked in you. Not just once, but always. And then notice the second part of the relationship that Paul and his co-workers have with the Thessalonians. The second part of that verse constantly uh, or without ceasing mentioning you in our prayers that they are constantly going before God and asking uh, that that God would be with them strengthen them uh, help them uh, give them perseverance uh, give them grace and peace right what have we already saw grace to you and peace he is constantly mentioning uh, later on in his letter in verse uh, 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Brothers, pray for us. And he is here being an example of what he is asking for them, right? He tell them, tells them, brothers, pray for us. And here he is saying, we pray for you constantly. <coughs> Why does Paul request their prayers? And why does he constantly mention them in prayer? Because they need it. And because he needs it. 
For Paul, prayer evidently was not merely a byproduct of his faith, right? Prayer was not just a mere byproduct. Prayer is not an addition, an add-on to his day, but it is central to his strength. It is central to his ministry. And this here is the challenge for us, because how often do we pray in the day? Paul, later on in chapter 5 again, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Right? The same idea that he's saying here, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Pray without ceasing. We pray without ceasing for you, and you pray without ceasing. Right? The, why, when, when we look at the church, why is the church so weak? Why are we so given to giving in to temptation? Why don't we see more people come to Christ? Why does there seem to be so little power among Christians? So little love, so little faith. Maybe it is because there is so little prayer. Maybe the fault lies here. Uh, James 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. And you ask and don't receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What does James say there? He says, what, he says to the church, why is there this quarreling, this fighting, this, this antagonism among you? Because you don't ask. You don't go to God and you don't pray to Him. And when you do, you ask with wrong motives. You ask that you uh, have wrong desires when you ask. James says a lot about prayer. He goes on later in his letter in chapter 5, verses 16 to 18 to say this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And we sometimes get stripped up on the language in James there, because it says, the prayer of a righteous person uh, if you want to go King James here, availeth much, right? Works much. The prayer of a righteous person works much. And we conclude, well, I'm not a righteous person, so I guess my prayers don't do anything. But notice what James says there. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man. Right? When we see this great example of God's working through Elijah's prayers, what we don't see is Elijah, the superhero of faith. What we see is Elijah, a man, a sinful man, a doubting man, a fearing man. And if we need any example of that, go to uh, the Old Testament, find the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah goes up to the prophets of Baal and he challenges them. And he says, listen, we're going we're gonna to have a little experiment here to see who is really God. If it's the Lord our God, 
orphans bail. And he takes them up to a mountain and they set out some sacrifices. And the goal was whoever's God was God was going to rain down fire and set fire to the sacrifice and offer that sacrifice uh, and and, um, without touching it. Right. So it wasn't that here. Let me throw a little match behind my back and get it right without touching it. And Elijah has this great, great victory. God does this miraculous thing, this miraculous victory, and then the people actually kill the prophets of Baal. And you would think that Elijah at this point, he's riding, he's riding on a high, right? He's literally had a mountaintop experience, right? When we talk about those kinds of things, right? He's literally had a mountaintop experience. And yet, what happens immediately after that is he runs and he hides and he says, God, strike me dead because I'm the only one left. God, you might as well just kill me because I can't go on any longer. What's the point in that? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't a superhero. He was a man. What was the difference between this man, though? He had faith in a God who is a superhero, if we want to say that, right? More than a superhero, better than a superhero. Right? He, he is a man who had faith. So why did Paul pray for the Thessalonians? Because he knew that God would act. He knew that God answers prayers, and he knew that the Thessalonians needed God's strength and grace. And the question for us this morning is, do we know this about God? Do we believe that God hears our prayers? And if he hears, he will answer them. I could turn you to 1 John chapter 5, and you could see information about that, what God says about that. Here's the thing. Do we thank God for our fellow faithful brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we lift up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to God and ask that God would give them strength and perseverance in an evil age? This is what Paul is doing. This is what he's saying. We we care about you Thessalonians and so we give thanks God uh, Give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And we see some of the reason for that constant thanks in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are those specifics here? He starts out, he says, their work of faith. Right? He sees in them lived out faith. It's not that they are earning their salvation by their works, but they're proving that their salvation has resulted in works, right? They are saved, and so they offer good works. What did their faith result in? In in verse 8 of our same chapter, it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we may not say anything. What is the result of their, uh, their work of faith? is the furthering of the kingdom of God. It was evident, not only in Macedonia, where they are, right? That's where Thessalonica is. They're in Macedonia. 
but also Achaia, which is an adjoining province. And not only that, it says in verse 8, but everywhere, gone forth everywhere, you are an example. You are an example of God's work everywhere. So we give thanks. Their work of faith. He says, we also thank God. We remember always their labor of love. And labor here is the same is a synonym of work, right? He's saying the same thing. Their work of love, their labor of love. They worked out their faith, and it resulted in a love for others. It was evidence of God's work in them. They loved others. They loved their brothers and sisters in Christ. They loved Paul and his co-workers. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 10 of, of our letter here. It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Right? They had a labor of love that was evident. Faith works itself out in love. And love is so essential to who God is and to who we ought be in Christ. So I would be remiss if I did not share these verses from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so one of the remarkable things that, that Paul is saying about the Thessalonians, right, is their labor of love. That something had happened in their midst, in their hearts, and that resulted in love for others. Because of God's atoning sacrifice in Christ, they were willing to sacrifice for others. The faith of the Thessalonians is proven to be real by their labor of love, and so Paul remembers such works of love and gives thanks to God, constantly mentioning them in his prayers. Then thirdly, we see their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-4 says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Isn't that interesting? He says similar things there, right? Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. See, part of the context of this, right, is that the Thessalonians were suffering under persecution, threats of persecution, and real persecution. Their lives were on the line. And one of the remarkable things that Paul notices about them, a work of God in them, is that they were steadfast. They were steady in their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their suffering did not produce despair, but greater hope. 
And hope is not this wishy-washy feeling either. That's how we often use it today, right? When we say we hope. I hope it doesn't rain today. Uh, I hope the light doesn't turn red before I get there. Although my occasion is I hope that the light's not red forever when I get there because it always turns red by the time I get there. But, or we could say I hope they have AL8 or maybe Mountain Dew this time uh, at the grocery store when we go, right? I hope that she does not come up to me and talk to me about her sick cat again. One can only take so much about little Fluffy and her illnesses, right? Right, we use that word to express a desire that could be one way or could be another way. But in the scriptures, that's not how the word hope is used. Hope is this sure, this steadfast belief in what God has said. And why is hope sure and steadfast? Because the object of hope is sure and steadfast, right? Let me say that again. Because the object, because it is rooted in the character of God. So hope would be wishy-washy if God was wishy-washy. But God is not. He's sure and he's steadfast. So when we say, for instance, that our hope is in Christ's return, we know that because Christ has said, I am coming back, we pray, as it says at the end of the book of Revelation, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And that is not a desire of wishy-washy hope. That is a belief that Christ is coming, and what we pray is Christ, come soon. Come quickly. Come soon. Right? So, So what we're doing, and what we see the Thessalonians doing, right, the steadfastness of hope, is that they have a sureness, a steadiness to it. This is something that God has worked in them that Paul is thankful for because they could have turned from hope to despair, right? They could have said the cost of following Christ is too high. I'm being pushed out of society, of culture. I'm being relegated to the back ranks. I'm being accosted. I'm being yelled at. I'm being called names. I'm being all these things. I'm being dragged before the civil magistrates. I'm being beaten and thrown in jail. It's not worth it. But no, they had a steadfastness of hope. They didn't look at the experiences of persecution that they were undergoing as something too great for them. But rather, they understood who their Lord Jesus Christ is. So this faith and love and hope of the Thessalonians is the reason that Paul and his his co-workers constantly give thanks to God. But where do these spring from? From whence comes their faith, their love, and their hope? Well, it comes from God. Let's look at verse 4. They are chosen brothers. Right? They are chosen brothers. Look at what he says there. For we know... For we know. Let's just stop there. What is he saying? We know. This is something we know. Not we we hope in the sense that we use it in our culture. But we know. The reality is that this work of God in them, that they are certain about the salvation. He is certain that God is working in their midst. 
He is certain about them because God is certain about them. And how is God certain about them? For we know brothers loved by God. Let's think about that there for a moment. They are loved by God. In the in the Greek, that the word love there, the way that it is used, it is in the sense that an action has been completed and it has ongoing results. So God loves them and continues to love them. Right? It's not just a past event that has happened. Now, at one point, God loved them. Now, that may be a different story. No, the idea here is that God loved them and continues to love them. Right? It has implications for them today, tomorrow, and every day thereafter. They're not merely loved by God for a season, but for eternity. And understand that this is you if you are in Christ. You are loved by God, not for a season, not for a moment, not on your good days, but forever. But forever. I don't know about you, but I often struggle with this. Because I think that I'm lovely to God, that God loves me when I'm doing good. And the times that I'm not doing good, well, God must hate me. And then i got to earn God's love back. That's not God's love. His love is a steadfast love. Let me tell you, that's my love. right? Why do I think that of God? Because that's my love. right? If you irritate me enough, I'm probably going to begin to not like you. Probably begin to not love you. Maybe even begin to hate you. That's how we experience love. That is not God's heart of love. When God is love, it is a steadfast and a sure love. If he has determined to love you, you are loved. Period. Eternally. And then the second part here. So he says, what, did they, what does Paul know about them? For we know, brothers loved by God, church loved by God, That he has chosen you. He has chosen them. He has called them. He has elected them. He has chosen them. And we see the reality of that in the next verse. But let's just think about this here. Because Paul will remind them and, and give thanks to God for the evidence of their faith in God. But he wants them to see, right, that they are chosen by God. He has chosen you. Romans 9, 15 through 16 For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul is making the argument there that, right, God loves whom he will love, whom he determines to love, whom he chooses to have compassion on, whom he chooses to show mercy, will have, will be, will have compassion, will have mercy, And what he says in verse 16 there is so important. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God has had compassion on the Thessalonians, and it has resulted in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with all that that entails. And he might well have said to them what he said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, gives us the qualifications. What are the qualifications to be chosen by God? Listen to this. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God did not choose the Thessalonians because they were awesome people. He didn't look at them and say, you know, I need them on my team. And let us make sure that we get the order of operations correct, correct, right? As Paul has thanked God for their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of their hope, understand that that does not predate God's loving grace towards them. What, What am I trying to say? More simply. Those evidences of their love towards God flow from God's love towards them first. Because God loved them and chose them and worked in them, they had works of faith, labors of love, and steadfastness of hope. Again, just to remind you, 1 John 4.10 tells us, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you are in Christ, this is true for you as well. You didn't love God, but he loved you. And when you begin to understand his compassion and grace and mercy towards him, towards you, you love him. That God has chosen us unto salvation, if indeed we are in Christ, should not be cause for us to boast in ourselves. That's the point of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Right? That's the point of this. Brothers and sisters... I am the least of all worthy to be saved. I know not why God would save, would choose to save a wretched, great sinner as myself. But that's quite the point. It is not about me, and it is not about you. It is about God. So let us boast in God. Let us boast in his glory. Let us boast of his grace and his steadfast love. Let us boast in our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but emptied himself. And Paul wants to encourage this church here, right? As he is writing to them, as they are suffering under persecution, he wants to encourage them to continue, to continue forward, to press on, to, to continue to do those works that God has worked in them. And so for you here this morning, beloved of God, press on, continue on, keep pressing forward, mm-hmm. further the kingdom work in spite of the difficulties and the persecutions you may face. The evil one wants to stop you because he wants to stop God's kingdom, but press on, Fight on. You are chosen. You are loved. God loves you and has chosen you. And so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is assured of the state of these believers before God in no small part because of the conviction power 
at work among them. Let's look at the first part of verse 5. Conviction power. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Right? So the gospel came to them in word. He says that, right? He said, came to them not only in word, but it did come to them in word. Paul, Silas, and Timothy preached the word to them. And why do I point that out? Because there are some people in our day and age, some who, who think that the furthering of the gospel message is best done through just good works. Uh, if we just go out in the community and we do good things, then people will know that we're, we're believers and that, that we're doing this for Jesus. And we, the best testimony that we have is our good works, and we don't even really need to say anything if we're doing those good works. That's not true. Right? We have to preach the gospel. And when I say preach the gospel, what I really just mean is <clears throat> proclaim the truth about Christ, right? Uh, preach, we sometimes get in that word, uh, uh, we think of preach and preachers. And we're not all preachers. But we are in a sense. We should all be proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. The gospel came to the Thessalonians in word, but not in word alone. It came in power. Mm-hmm. So right, preach the gospel. But it came in power. And so what does this mean? It could reference that there were miracles that took place among them, right? We, we often see that in especially the book of Acts, that Paul goes into a certain place or one of the other apostles goes into a certain place and the word comes with power. Like people are healed, people are, uh, people are uh, freed from demonic possession uh, and oppression and, and all sorts of things, right? So it could reference that. Uh, but it seems that it's broader than that. And that's just to say that the word came to them with action, with activity. Right, 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Right, so there Paul contrasts talk and power. Right, it's not just word, but it's also power. When the kingdom of God comes, it comes in power. 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul warns about those who, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Right, so there's a sense in which we can pretend on the outside to be godly, and have no power of such godliness, right? That we can look like we're a good Christian, but it makes no difference in our lives or in the lives of those around us. And, and again, there are many churches that, that are just that, right? That have the appearance of godliness, that have the appearance of life, but they're like the church of Sardis in the book of Revelation. You have the appearance of life, but you're dead, right? So if there's the appearance of godliness, but no power, Paul says that Timothy avoids such people. Uh, or James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? If the word only comes to us and in our hearing and it doesn't impact our doing, we are deceiving ourselves. Right? As much as we could read the scripture throughout the week, if that's all it does, if all it is is a matter of checklisting something, right? To marking something off our to-do list, or as some attempt to assuage some guilt we feel, if it doesn't come in power, if it doesn't come in action, we're deceiving ourselves. Because let me go ahead and say, it's easy to do what we're doing this morning. It is easy to gather together, and it's easy to listen to a sermon. I mean, I know I'm not the most dynamic uh, of preachers, and, and and maybe it's not as easy. It's easy for me to say right up here. 
Uh, but it may be more, much more difficult for you who are like, why won't this guy just be quiet or end things, right? You could have ended 20 minutes ago, but he's waffling on and he keeps doing it. Like even right now, what I'm talking about, you're probably thinking like, make the point, go on, move on, right? Right, it's easy to do that. The harder part is putting it in action, right? The harder part is living out what God has called us to live out. And if all we do is hear, and we never do, we're deceiving ourselves. As a church, we're deceiving ourselves. But something happened among the Thessalonians. The word came with power. The great change happened within them. Uh, we could look, for instance, and I would just encourage you to do this uh, in your own time today, is go read out of Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 is uh, Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. And it may be familiar to you, but God calls him to a, uh, he, he gives him a vision of this valley filled with dry bones. And uh, as Ezekiel looks out over it, God tells him, preach and see what I do. See how I create life out of death. And understand that that's what God does in the gospel. When he when we hear the word preached and it comes with power, we are made alive. We're given a new birth. This is still the work of God. It's what God does. So not only did it come in word and in power, but also in the Holy Spirit. So part of why Paul is so sure about the Thessalonian salvation is because as they heard the word, as they believed, as they were given new life, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed up with his power and gifts. They showed evidence of the Spirit of God at work in their midst. And not only that, but with full conviction. Right? So, in the power, in the word, in the power, in this Holy Spirit, and with full conviction or complete assurance, uh, complete certainty about the gospel and its truth. They were certain, they were certain about the message of Christ. They were fully convinced that God sent his son to pay the penalty of their sins. They were assured that what God had promised in Christ Jesus was true, that they had eternal life in Christ. And this, the, the truth of this, right, the fullness of their conviction of such things was that was seen in that even though they are being persecuted for believing it, they can't neglect it. Right? It's easy to do that. If someone makes fun of us for a belief, it's easy for us to say, eh, right? I, I, I'm not going to believe that. I'm going I'm to just, I'm going to pretend like I don't believe that, right? Because it's easier. I don't want to get made fun of. I don't want to be denigrated. I don't want to be uh, turned, turned away. But no, they did not waver even though it costs them much. So Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians, and with good reason. They heard the message of the gospel. They heard the word preached, and they believed. God chose them. He loved them. And they responded with faith and obedience. They began to work out the reality of the gospel in good works. <coughs> they had works of faith. They had labors of love. They had steadfastness of hope. And Paul was so sure about them in Christ because he saw firsthand those things. How they responded to the gospel with power, the working of the Holy Spirit in their midst, and with full conviction. 
perseverance in the face of persecution. And if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you have reason to persevere. You have reason to continue forward. God loves you. He has loved you. He will continue to love you. He has chosen you after all. To you, the encouragement is to do those good works that God has appointed for you. Be busy about his work, showing his love, telling others of his grace. Not that you may earn your salvation, but because you are saved. Right? You don't do good works to be saved, but you do good works because you're saved. For some of you, though, the gospel has come in word, but not in power. You have heard the truth about your utter sinfulness, about your wickedness. You have heard the evil uh, uh, of, the, of the thoughts and the words and the deeds, uh, all those things. You know that, that you are sinful before God. You have heard about the Son of God, Jesus coming from heaven, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, though he was without sin, dying on a tree bearing the wrath of God for his people's sin. You have heard that Jesus raised from the grave to defeat sin and death, you have heard that if you believe in Christ Jesus, you too can have the forgiveness of your sins and the victory over death and sin that Christ himself has had. You, you have heard that you can obtain eternal life, but the truth is, as you look in your own heart, as you look in your own life, there's no power, there's no Holy Spirit, there's no full conviction. You have no works of faith, you have no labors of love, and you have no steadfastness of sure hope. You can take stock of your life and see that something is still missing. That something is the new birth. That something is real and true belief in the work of Christ. And so this morning, today, believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Ask God to work in your heart to bring about new life. Ask that he would have mercy on you. Ask that he would save you because he alone can save you. No good work of yours can save you. No good work of anyone else can save you. Only God can. And so confess your sin to God. Confess your sins. Turn from them. Repent and believe in Christ Jesus. Let us pray.